0: You are listening to Subro On The Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Subro On The Go. This this one's a bit of an emergency uh, podcast episode. Um, I'm joined again, this is David Briscoe from the San Diego office of Cozen O'Connor, joined as always by my co-host, Joe Rich, uh, and we have a special returning guest, Josh Goodman, the chair of our Southeast region based out of our Miami office. Um, And and usually, for those that have, have listened to this before, there's a there's a fun banter that Joe and I often have as um, as me being from California, Joe from Florida, um, and and we um, take a few jabs at each other now and then and have a good time. Um, but but today we've got a, a, a bit of a Florida and a, and a light California comparison that that just isn't funny um, because Joe and Josh are here to talk to us about some updates to Florida law that really impact subrogation. Um, I was actually just I mean nauseous reading some of the uh, some of the changes. And it's, it's uh, so we're calling this an emergency podcast on the changes to um, Florida law. And there's three different categories that we're going to talk about today um, regarding statute of limitations, statute of pose, and, and comparative fault principles that you absolutely must know if you are a segregation professional practicing in Florida. So thank you for joining us, guys. At the end, I'll, I'll do a 60-second bit um, uh, to clarify that, while Florida has is cutting um, cutting time on various uh, um, statute limitations and repose, um, California does still have a little more time left um, from a COVID extension that's allowing uh, um, that's still in place and is allowing you more time if your statute is actually recently um, passed and expired on a statute of limitations issue. So I'll bring that up at the end to close. But the bulk of this conversation is going to be about Florida. So talk to us, uh, Joe and Josh, about. Um, maybe the first one, this this uh, change in statute of limitations and what that's all about.
2: Uh, thanks, Dave. First, uh, before I get started, I need to amend a previous statement that I made on your podcast. I previously had said that Zoom was the worst thing that could happen for subrogation. But I think I have to amend it to say that this change in the statute of limitations and repose and
0: comparative fault is probably the worst thing that could happen <laughs> to subrogation yeah i would I would agree with Josh um just to give a two minute backstory on this uh Dave again, thanks for the introduction as always. So for our listeners, there's been a major push in the state of Florida in the past six months um to enact legislation to deal with the insurance crisis in the state um the difficulty in getting homeowners property coverage insurance has been in the news. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen it. So these changes, some of them were kind of, I would say, snuck into a bigger plan of legislation related to attorney's fees and first party coverage litigation. Um, So they may not have gotten as much attention as some of the other big ticket items, but these are very, very relevant for those subrogation professionals handling claims in the state of Florida. So we're going to start off first talking about the negligence statute of limitations. Josh, you want to start us off on that?
2: Uh, Sure, thanks, Joe. So the the important thing for everyone in Florida to note is that the statute of limitations for negligence has been reduced from four years to two. So I guess that begs the question, what's a statute of limitations? Um, To go back to basics. So a statute of limitations is a prescriptive period Uh, It's generally a law passed by a legislative body, which is what happened in Florida, to set the maximum time after an event within which legal proceedings may be initiated. Uh, So when the time uh, of the statute of limitations runs out, a claim is no longer able to be filed or if it's filed, it's subject to dismissal if the defense uh, raises the claim or raises the affirmative defense of statute of limitations if it was filed after the two years. Joe, you want to talk about when that would uh, start to run on the news? Yeah,
0: state? so for, for each of these big three changes we're going to talk about, um, strangely, they all have different what I'll call trigger dates. So for the new statute of limitations for negligence actions, which is now two years, formally for now two years, The the effective date of when this applies is on or after March 24th of 2023, which is the date that the governor signed it into law. So the way the statute and the amendment reads is that it applies to actions that accrue um, after the effective date of the law, right? So the effective date of the law is March 24th, 2023. So that would really mean anything after that date will now be subject to a two-year statute of limitations. For us, that's the date of loss, right? So if you now have something that you have a fire that happened on March 25th of 2023, you are now under a two-year statute of limitations to bring a claim arising out of that fire. If it happened on March 24th or March 23rd, you're still subject to the four-year statute of limitations. And you can see how now you could have claims pending, Dave and Josh, that are going to be subject to a four-year statute, new claims subject to a two-year statute. So you really have to keep track of that trigger date, which is after March 24th of 2023, and where you get into maybe some discussion about practical implications, you know, we've all had those claims where, you know, for example, you have a water loss. It's discovered, let's say, on March 25th, but you don't actually know, did it start the day before, or a couple of days before, the insured's been out of town for a week. Those cases are going to be, I think you're going to have to really do some deep dive analysis. But some of the other practical implications of this, like for me, is thinking about um, time frame for adjustments, for instance. Um, We could be in situations where, um, you know, in South Florida, for some reason, especially with commercial risks, adjustments tend to take a long time. Or if there are, you know, appraisals involved or coverage disputes, um, you could very easily be running up against that two-year statute of limitations. Right, Josh? Which means, you know, you have to investigate faster You have to be ready with counsel faster and you're really now another practical implication i think is you have much less time to explore a pre-suit resolution what are your thoughts josh
2: you know different insurers have different ways of um pursuing subrogation and how their subrogation is pursued you know there are some insurers that as you know as soon as the loss occurs They're assigning subrogation counsel to assist with the investigation um, to go parallel and assist the adjuster uh, with that investigation. There are other insurers um, in the industry that will wait till an adjustment is complete. And then once the adjustment's complete, they'll send it over to subrogation counsel or get some subrogation assistance, uh, whether it be internally or externally. Um, I think now what this change is going to require is that, Pretty much all insurers are going to have to get their subrogation professionals engaged uh, at the first notice of loss because the time is going to go by very quickly um, from the initial notice to when the statute runs. There's a lot to do with subrogation investigations. Um, You definitely want to get the right experts involved, get the right parties involved, and Um, because you only have two years and like you said you have a shorter period of time to try to resolve something pre-suit you'd want to move much quicker than we have in the past Uh, one important aspect of that is uh, filing a complaint uh, before way before that two-year statute of limitations ends so that if there are any fabre defendants raised you can include them before the statute runs. So Yeah, we might,
0: we want, to might want to explain a little, a little bit, bit on, on fabric defendants. defendants. So in, so the, state in the state of Florida, of Florida it's, it's a way in which um, the defendant, when you file a complaint, can file in their responsive pleading and their answer and affirmative defense. They can identify other third parties who they attribute fault to without having to re- – they're not required to add them as third-party defendants It's a specific aspect of Florida state court practice. And that happens routinely in cases, Josh and I see it. And inevitably, you know, if you have 10 cases in one of them, they're going to identify a third party that you didn't know existed, a subcontractor, a sub of a subcontractor, especially in anything construction related. As aggressive and as fast as we move with our investigations, there are just going to be some situations Where you might not have the full cast of players, you know, before you in under two years. Um, And, you know, you want to leave yourself a buffer like you don't want to be. I think what Josh is saying is you can't wait to file suit a week before the statute runs because there still may be other parties. Right, Josh?
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Joe. Um, It's it's going to require the adjusters and the subrogation professionals to work on parallel tracks uh, to identify failure modes to identify possible targets uh, to place those possible targets on notice as soon as possible um, and then to proceed with the pursuit of subrogation pre-suit sooner rather than later so that that statute does not run Um, you know there are some states like california i think that uh, and dave can tell us this that have Required pre-suit mediations. Florida is not one of those states. So, if you can't get something resolved with the targets, you're definitely going to want to file the complaint well before those two-year runs, so that if they do start raising those fabricated defendants that you just talked about, uh, you can move the court to have your complaint amended to add those parties. And it's going to be. And, imp- and
0: what I would, what I would add to is. Interestingly, a a big sort of advertised selling point of these of this legislative package was it was in total designed to reduce litigation. I actually think it's probably going to have the reverse effect because with a shorter statute of limitations, you know, you don't have an extra 2 years as a buffer anymore to try to work things out with people, to try to explore creative pre suit resolution through mediation, arbitration, or whatever. You know, the the window is narrow and, and, and a lot of investigations, especially if there's a product liability issues involved, can take months to to proceed. So you know, that's pretty much the big change um with statute of limitations in kind of a short encapsulated nutshell. Um the the other big change is the second one I guess we would say is Florida has historically been a pure comparative fault state, which means that whatever percentage of fault the insured or the plaintiff is assigned reduces their claim. So if you, take, if you start with 100% and the jury were to find that the insured were 15% at fault, um, your damages are reduced by 15%. That is no longer the law in Florida um, as of the passage of this um, legislative act on March 24th. 2003, now Florida has moved to a modified comparative fault. And it's an interesting modified comparative fault scheme because the new rule requires, uh, well, basically says that if the insured or the plaintiff is, quote, more than 50%, end quote, at fault, they are barred from recovering under a negligence theory. So it could be 50.1%, it could be 51%, it could be 55%. But if it's more than 50%, um, in theory, under the new statute, a negligence claim is going to be barred. And this has essentially given given leeway to basically a new affirmative defense that defendants can allege and most likely will almost immediately start alleging in our cases. Um, unlike the statute of limitations change where it applies to any Cause of action accruing after March 24th, 2023. This change on modified comparative fault applies to any lawsuits filed after the date of the act on March 24th, 2023. Very different and and very significant because it means that if you have pending cases that are subject to the four-year statute of limitations Whenever you file them, the new comparative fault rule is going to apply. Why they set up two different trigger mechanisms for these changes, I can't tell you. I've researched it, and I, I didn't see any notes in the legislative findings. But it is very different, and there are, therefore, different trigger dates. So just to recap, with the statute of limitations, any cause of action that accrues after March 24th is now two years. With the modified comparative... Any lawsuit filed after March 24th will have modified comparative fault. So, Josh, what do you think some of the practical implications of this of this change are going to be?
2: You know, to your point that the legislation with the statute of limitations being decreased is going to increase litigation. I think this legislation also, although it was intended to decrease litigation, I think it's going to increase litigation because more defendants are going to uh, raise that defense pre-suit, which means you're going to have to litigate it to determine the percentage of fault. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, uh, that percentage of fault can only be allocated by a finder of fact uh, once a case is tried. So I see that there's going, you know, my view would be that I think there's going to probably be more trials now uh, because of this legislation. Um, Granted, You know it will it it may stop or reduce the likelihood of plaintiffs who have really bad cases from filing but when you have a a case where there's a plaintiff that maybe participated or had a hand in uh, causing a defect um, I think a lot of insurers are going to want to proceed with the claim and a lot of the defendants are going to want to defend the claims and when that happens and everybody's really far apart you're going to end up with a lot more trials. so I think this is going to uh, probably cause even more headache uh, for the trial judges
1: yeah it's such a good point for you guys. I mean um, what we see often in the subro context. Um, on the comparative fault of our insured is, is typically a misuse argument. That's, that's one of the most you know, frequent ones we see is that it's a product failure and the insured misused it in a way or um, that, that caught, contributed to the cause of the loss. And we always argue, obviously, no, the insured didn't misuse it, or even if it, the insured did, that's a foreseeable misuse um, and, and something that should have been guarded against. And it sounds like you're absolutely right. One of the reasons we loved having Florida – Um, as, you know, a a pure comparative fault state where if the insured did have a small amount of comparative fault, it didn't bar your claim entirely. But now I think you're absolutely right. You're just going to see more and more of these kind of nonsensical arguments of insured comparative fault just to try to reach that higher than 50 percent threshold to try to bar the claim, and and it's going to make it so you do have more litigation because you're just going to be fighting, um, you know, to a jury. Uh, you know, nonsensical arguments that the insured was comparatively at fault in, in whatever caused the fire or flood for the Subro case.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I would add, you know, in the legislative context, I think this change was just not to get too far off topic, was made because there there was a thought that a lot of um, lawsuits had been filed in the state of Florida, you know, where there was not a strong basis that the defendant's fault. Outweighed the plaintiffs and combined with some first party coverage statute language that used to allow, which it doesn't anymore, but used to allow the recovery of attorneys' fees if you were able to beat a carrier's proposal and litigation. You know so there, there was an understanding as to why they did it, but it's like anything else, you know when you push the pendulum one way, there's going you know, cause and effect, there's going to be another effect. And I think what you're going to see is exactly what you said, Dave. No one, like Josh said, it's up to a jury to say what is more than 50% at fault, right? But we are now going to face what I would say perhaps less legitimate defense arguments that the insured is more than 50% at fault, you know, simply because they may have known something or, or may not have used it in the exact way that it was supposed to be used, which may bear some level of comparative fault. But for me, you know, more than 50 percent, it's essentially a standard that says you did more wrong than the defendant did. Right. And I'm not sure that we're going to get there easily. So, yeah, there will be litigation, I think, um, on this.
2: Yeah, Joe. And, you know, to that point, what's curious
0: about the legislation is that
2: it doesn't say uh, that a plaintiff cannot recover if, its negligence is greater than the defendant's. It says if the plaintiff's negligence is more than 50%. So if a plaintiff is suing multiple defendants, uh, theoretically you could have a plaintiff suing two defendants. Uh, the plaintiff could be 40% negligent and the two defendants can each be 30% negligent. And even though the plaintiff has uh, is more at fault, you could still recover in that situation. So primarily it's going to be in a situation where they really find definitively that a plaintiff was more than 50% negligent. So it's, uh, I don't know, I think. The-
0: yeah, it's that, that's an interesting point because I think you and I would agree based on our experience litigating cases in Florida that, um, you know, especially in the construction setting, defendants love to identify Favre parties and sort of add more parties into the mix and force plaintiffs to add a lot of parties. It may end up backfiring because, you know, it may actually be, a way to minimize the impact of comparative fault, like you just said in that scenario. But it it is an interesting way that they phrased it. Um, So let's get on, since we're getting on in time here, let's get on to the third big change. This is like hot off the presses. Last Thursday, um, April 13th, 2023, the governor signed another piece of legislation that reduced the statute of repose in the state of Florida and it's the statute of repose for negligence claims arising out of the design, planning, or construction of improvements to real property. All of us in the industry, we generally refer to these type of statutes as statute of repose for improvements to real property. It was 10 years, which I've done a little bit of research on this. Seems to be kind of a fairly standard number um, across the country um, it's not the highest, it's not the lowest, it's kind of somewhere in the middle, but it has now been reduced to seven years. Um, so there was a three-year reduction um, of the statute of repose, and like like the statute of limitations change and the modified comparative fault, this has a third different type of trigger, right? So um, the way that this new statutory change it, it was phrased in the statute, it says, it will apply to so so it applies to any action right commenced on or after the effective date of the law which is April 13th of 2023 irrespective of when the cause of action accrued so somewhat like the modified comparative fault change um any lawsuit you file from after April 13th you're going to be subject to the statute of repose only being 7 years interestingly Unlike the other two changes, um, the the legislature here also gave like what I would call a grace period. So for any claim that would not have been barred under the 10-year statute of repose, you still have until July 1st of 2024 to bring that action. This is like a grace period of sorts where they're giving claimants essentially another year to bring their claims that would not have been barred under the ten year statute of repose, I think there was a little bit more thought into this one, Josh and Dave, you know, because they did give the grace period, which essentially gives us time to go back and do kind of an evaluation. This type of grace period was not given in the other two changes, but this is this is also a big change too guys. what do you think
1: This is the worst one to me I mean in some respects if we were sports, they're all bad, but if we were a sports you know podcast or sports show we'd like to compare things and we'd ask you know like well which one is the <laughs> which one's the worst um and for me this one can be the worst setting aside the grace period obviously which buys you some time to deal with this but but once that period's over and we're now dealing with this world of, of seven years instead of 10 as a statute of pose as a complete bar you know to your claim um, once an improvement to real properties you know, over seven years old in the context so many of our losses our construction defect losses when it deals with fire and floods don't occur for a significant period of time because it takes that much time for the failure event to occur so if you have you know a a pipe that wasn't soldered properly it doesn't necessarily fail you know immediately it takes many years sometimes for that failure event to occur if you have a nail or a staple into a, a wire <clears throat> that's causing elect- uh, resistive heating it doesn't fail in two or three years. Sometimes it takes many years to fail. Sometimes it's more than 10 years, which is why the 10-year statute of repose can be frustrating. Um, so you can have these cases or, or, or pyrolysis, you know, with a with a chimney that's not installed properly. Um, you know, all these several scenarios that, that we're used to seeing um, take many years to um, for that defect to manifest itself into a fire or a flood, and you're going to have so many instances where you've got a case now that's you know eight years um after construction and and it's a great liability case it's a clear construction defect and you're completely barred and that's what's frustrating to, to me to see
0: yeah i mean like josh gave a definition early on of a statute of limitation the statute of repose kind of acts in reverse and it looks backward at when the work was done by the party you're pursuing right so now that window looking backwards is shorter But it's even shorter than seven years, and let me explain why, Dave. Because the trigger dates have been changed in the statute as well. So the timing now runs from the earliest of a temporary certificate of occupancy, a certificate of occupancy, a certificate of completion, or the date a construction project was abandoned if it goes uncompleted. Why this is big is because before they changed this, in this change, they deleted the option of actual possession by the owner or completion of the contract by the contracting party. So what they did is now it's the earliest of, you know, a temporary certificate of occupancy. In a in a commercial construction, you're probably going to get a temporary CEO pretty early on in the process. You know, you may have three months of punch-out items left. You know, so, you know, the timing may even be shorter than what is the apparent seven years. You know, everybody always goes, oh, the building was finished, you know, at this time. But you actually have to look at what is the trigger date.
2: You know, the, the unfortunate thing is, at least my view, uh, like Ben Affleck said in that uh, great scene in Goodwill Hunting, um, when he was talking to the corporation, he thought they were suspect. You know, I, I think this legislation is a bit, a bit suspect. Uh, It only, on its face, benefits uh, construction defect defense attorneys and the construction industry. I mean, if you look at it, individuals who buy homes, it's generally their biggest asset. And the state legislature just lessened an individual's ability to protect that asset. Also, if you look at corporations, uh, other than the payment of employees, usually their buildings are their largest expense. And now the legislature has prevented um, those corporations from protecting that asset. So I, I just think it's, it wasn't really um, a great thing for the citizens and the corporations of the state of Florida. Uh, in my view, it only benefits you know two class of individuals and entities. So you would think that maybe that there's an underlying basis that hasn't been disclosed by the legislature of why they did this. Uh, but, again, I don't think it protects anybody. And to go to David's point, uh, it's probably out of the three that we've discussed today is probably uh, the worst.
1: Yeah, good stuff, guys. I mean, it's uh, I appreciate all both your time and Josh coming on um, as a guest to, to help us with this because it was a lot to cover. We we're a little over time for, for our usual podcast length, but it's a lot for everybody to digest, and and, and everybody needs to be taking action um, uh, immediately to address how they're how they're um, uh, flagging and categorizing claims in terms of these deadlines to make sure nothing's missed on the sub-row front. Um, you know, I won't, in the interest of time, um, I'll just give my. 20 seconds on the uh, uh, California's extension that I mentioned in the beginning, but that that gave during COVID we got a six months um, tolling, almost six months. It was 178 days of tolling of any statute limitations um, that was uh, running between April 2020 and October 2020. So what that means is for anybody that had a typical negligent subrogation case in California, if your statute was normally supposed to expire in the first few months of 2023, and, and at the time of this podcast would have already expired. You still have more time um, and and just reach out if you have any questions on how to calculate that. Otherwise, any other thoughts, guys? This was a fantastic um, kind of emergency podcast to get everybody caught up on on the Florida change. No,
0: thanks. Thanks for kind of leading the discussion on it. You know, just so our listeners know, as like a closing note, this legislation got passed in what I would consider record time. It was introduced in mid-February and it was passed you know, the the two big first changes were passed, you know, at the at the end of March. I mean, the efficiency with which these move through the Florida state legislature shouldn't go unnoticed because it goes to Josh's point. Like, you know, the the question becomes, is this really going to benefit? Who's it going to benefit? And And ultimately, I think we all kind of agree that it's not going to decrease the amount of litigation in the state of Florida. It may actually increase it. So. Just my my final closing comment to our listeners out there and is you know move quick now, you know don't delay in the state of Florida, make sure your investigations are moving at a quick pace, and make sure whoever your uh, subrogation partners are, you're getting them involved early on.
1: Good stuff, guys. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon.
0: Thanks, Dave.